Um, for a few seconds tonight, uh, as you can see up there, it's about Victor William Derrington, and we have Victor's son Stuart over here, and he will be giving us all tonight. I don't know an awful lot about your dad, I'm afraid, so I'm hoping to learn quite a lot tonight. So am I. <laughs> over to you, Stuart. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As I said, introduced, I'm Stuart Derrington, the son of Victor Derrington. This is a rather strange experience for me because this is the first time I've ever talked about my father. Now, what I never realised, and it's probably because it's only when my son said to me, you ought to write about your father because there's so much information about him, that you think that your father... Well, take it, uh, you just think he's a, just a normal guy, he worked, did things, produced things, and, but then when I looked into it, I found he lived an extraordinary life of things that he developed, manufactured, produced, sold worldwide, and now are standard equipment on your cars. And it's a great shame, I think, to myself that in some respect, we always know about the drivers. We sometimes know about the mechanics, but sometimes we know about the designers, but we never know about the person who actually made the particular items. Anyway, I will start from scratch. I was born in 1948. Good year. Yes, good year. Now, if anybody would then think to themselves, I'm obviously I'm 66, yeah, yeah, 66 still, but I'm probably the youngest person whose father raced at Brooklands because he started racing at Brooklands in 1922. I'm not going to talk much about Brooklands, but I'm just going to, because... You'll see why as I progress as all the things that he did. But we'll start from right from the beginning. He was born on the 1st of July, 1899. He lived uh, in various houses that were rented by uh, his father, who was a William Derrington, who was an analytical chemist. But by 1912, he was living in New Malden. And he went to school at Tiffin's. Now, when I contacted Tiffin's, they told me he was there for two years. And he got there on a bursary, which in those days was only given to people with high intelligence. Now, on two, within two years, he then joined Sotwith Aviation Company and was one of the first apprentices. And one of his fellow apprentices was Donald Healy, but whether it's the right Donald Healy, I do not know. But I do know that in August 1917, he organised, and this by this time he was only 18, the, a two-day sports event for the Sotwith Aircraft Company. And when you consider that he's only a young lad and he's organised it all, it shows that he's got organisational skills and obviously intelligence. He enlisted for the First World War on the 1st of August 1917. He applied to join the RFC in those days, but he was turned down. 
that finally on the 7th of June 1918, he was called up and joined the Artist Rifles. Now, the Artist Rifles are the forerunners for the SAS. So, again, you only got into there if you were highly intelligent. He then, after three months, he was transferred to the Tank Corps. And he was discharged on the 22nd of March, 1919, as a second lieutenant. Again, at the young tender age of 19. Now, what is remarkable is that he only served 288 days, and his commandant at the time said that this gentleman, or this cadet, is highly intelligent and would go for a full command if he'd stayed longer in the army. But obviously, that life changed. So he came out of the army in 1919, not knowing what to do. Now, one of the in an article last year in the you know, our local ma in the magazine, I thought to myself, I was always wondered why didn't he join the Sopwith Aircraft Company again? And it was an article about Harry Hawker. Harry Hawker, in 1919, didn't know what to do because the RAF, RAF in those, by that time, had so many aircraft, they didn't know what to do, there was no production for aircraft, so he turned to producing motorbikes. So that's why, he never, a deduce, he never joined Sopwith again. He was, anyway, in July of that year, he was looking at a scrapyard in Croydon. Why? I don't know. But he came and saw some copper pipes there, surplus from the war, and he thought, my God, they will make great exhaust pipes for motorbikes. And that is how he started in business, making exhaust pipes for motorbikes. Just going a little back a bit, there's my father on the front row. Well, there we go. This to there, that's my father. And the one on the extreme left is a gentleman called Mr. Shranks. Mr. Shranks turned out to be later in life the managing director of Hawker Aircraft Company. So he was in good company there. There's a typical plane of, um, whoops, I keep doing the wrong one. There's my father standing there. This is 1914, and that is on the slipway at Kingston. Now, there is, I'm not, it doesn't actually, I won't be actually going on, there is a, uh, an article which I haven't got here but in 1959, my father was credited to being in Flight Magazine, the Sotwith Air Aircraft Corporation Flying Seaplane uh, Specialist, which I still find remarkable when he left there when he was roughly 18, and he went there when he was 14. He was only there four years, and in that time, he became their specialist. Now... There's another plane of the Sopwiths of that era. And that's my father in his outfit uniform. Now, I don't know which one it is. I have uh, sent out feelers for it, but I still haven't got a read whether that's his artist rifles or his tank corps unit. But I think it's the tank corps because he's, it looks like a lieutenant's uniform. And that's him in the, the camp 
at Winchester. He's on the bottom right, just there. So, anyway, as I said, he went on to make exhaust pipes, silencers, and you'll notice on the top there, the Brooklyn silencer. Now, do you realise that none of you people will be here because of that item? Because in 1924, the local people were up in arms with Brooklands and the noise that the cars were making. And they were, had applied to the High Court in order to close down Brooklands because of the noise. My father produced the silencer. So you can see there's various types that he did. And there. And on the, over on the table there, you'll see an original uh, silencer from Brooklands. It's actually got, it, was only, it was produced in the 60s. And when our business moved from in 1979 to, uh, from one part of Kingston to another part, all the patterns from there went, are now in the archives at Brooklands, and they still haven't put them on display. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So, there's the exhaust pipes. For your, all these motorbikes that he made, Unfortunately, I'm sorry, it's a very bad photograph, but you can probably see AGS, BSA, Harley, Indians, New Imperials, oh, Japs, Rally, Rudge, Sunbeam. There's quite a few exhaust pipes that he made, and that's what he started off, and he was known throughout his life as Mr. Exhaust. Did he supply the manufacturers, or was it that it was a go faster, go louder? You're probably coming on to that. I'm coming a little bit on there on that side. No, um, <laughs> go louder or quieter as such probably came about because of the silencer that my father produced. Now, you'll see in a minute. Now, what you're talking about is the peak, like, sort of like the Pico exhaust systems of the uh, 60s and 70s. There's the regulation fishtails that we did, as you can see, he did them in aluminium or steel, and regulation steel silencers as well. And again, on there is actually a genuine original fishtail from that period. I can tell that by the telephone number. Yeah. <laughs> Right, now as you can see, there's another version of the silencer, and you'll see one on a, on a car in a minute. In 1919, when he came out of it, he set up the work at Graf the Aero Works in Grafton Road, New Malden. Now if anybody knows New Malden, uh, New Malden Railway Station, where the Tesco's is by the side of it, that building there, the Aero Works was about number two on the corner there before it got knocked down several years ago. But well, there we go. Fishtail, six and nine to 13 and sixpence. Ooh. 
there, as you can see, again, another one article on the fishtail. The Darrington fishtail is cast in its best quality aluminium alloy, and to give maximum efficiency, the wide mouth is lipped all round, and the breech pieces are cast in this, preventing the mouth from opening and so reducing the efficiency. I think a lot of that information my father was involved with came from the aircraft industry, because he knew what uh, material to use. So there we go. There we go. That was, that was our saying about a silencer. There we go. Now, there's my father again. And anybody, anybody recognise the person sitting there? I shouldn't think so. That is J.J. Hall. Now, J.J. Hall, this is for a photo from 1924. It's a Hilton Pacey with a 356cc Villiers engine prepared by my father for the attacks on the world records. Now, you just wonder how they could ever be brave enough to drive one of those things and create world records. It wasn't health and safety in those days, was there? <laughs> as far as I know, I'm led to believe, the background to it is actually Brooklyn's. But uh, that's because on the back of it, I, some years ago I gave the photograph to Brooklyn's, and uh, they, somebody wrote on the back of it a good picture of the background of Brooklyn's. So I have to, have to say, they, they know better than I do. You know, they, anyway, in 1930, J.J. Hall was still racing three-wheelers in various forms for a number of years. And my, in 1934, my father was a passenger in one of his three-wheeler specials, which um, the rear tyre burst and he was thrown out together with J.J. Hall and spent several months in Weybridge Cottage Hospital. I don't know if it's still going, but I've been, I have actually been several years ago, went to see the cottage hospital, what it looked like in Weybridge. But uh, anyway, the, as far as I can tell, that is the first crash that my father actually had. Now, I hope the next picture is the right one. Yes, it is. Good. Now, you'll see, this is, my father had a, a affinity to Samson's. This is one of his Samson's with him driving it and holding up the sheet is a gentleman called Eric Finden, Finden who was the editor of the light car and cycle car magazine at the time. So uh, he knew how to get publicity, didn't he? Yeah, there's, as you can see, back fitted with one of the Derrington exhausts, because you can tell by the silencer. And we'll look at the next one. There's another at the front view of it. And this is the my father's famous. Oops, hold on. This is my father's famous one. This is the 1929 San Sebastian Samson that he raced at Brooklands. He bought it off the stand at the Motor Show in 1929 and held it, and it was in, in his ownership until 1971 when Bill Boddy uh, persuaded him to, to sell it to him. He went on to a, and is now in Denmark, that car. The other, there's, my father raced three Samsons 
I know of at least. And three of those Samsons are still alive and clicking around the world somewhere, but there's three still. But that is the most famous one at all. There was only two ever built, and that's one of them. And I think it's, well, easily half a million pounds worth of car. That picture there was taken, as far as we can work it out, in 1967 at the first Brooklands reunion, when the first chance that they could get it, my father walked down here, Samson, and uh, I'm not sure if he actually drove it on that day, but, uh, or whether, but he was certainly drivable right up until his death. This is another famous car. Now, what it's doing there, I do not know, but it's in my father's collection. Does anybody recognize it? Sorry? No. I'll tell you its name. It's Impshi. No. That is, in fact, on the written on the back is Impshi, and it says it's the first MG built on a Morris body. Now, I assume that why my father's got this photo is he made the exhaust system for it. There's also an article in uh, found about Fraser Nash in 1926 when they were producing a um, sports car. And there it uh, was quite proud to announce that it was fitted with a Derrington exhaust system which made it go faster. But whether that is genuine or not, I don't know, but that's what's written on the back of their cards with my father's handwriting. And it was developed at a company in Kingston, so it's obviously my father had some involvement with it. Now, let's get, this is an interesting one. Oh dear. My father used to race some strange vehicles, I think. Yeah. Wolsey Hornet. Oh, yes. Sand racing at Skegness. That's what it is. Now look at the, look at the crowds behind the, uh, yeah, the barriers and all the rest of it, the rubber tires and other safety measures. Yes. On the, over there, you'll see the trophy that my father got that day. Uh, a Skegness man, famous Skegness man. That was um, in 1930. Uh, right. Now, my father's claim to fame. This is the light car race, the only race that my father in all his life ever won. And so I'm quite proud of that. Again in the Samson. Again, there is, there's the car, 12, number 12. Yep, there we go. And he raced. And I've still got the trophy for that race meeting. And when uh, the Antiques Roadshow was here, did uh, you remember that? Uh, it turned out that it was, um, that the trophy being made of silver was made by a well-known silversmith. And with its, with its provenance, my father, inscribed on it, they reckoned it was worth seven and a half thousand pounds. Ah, but it depends on who buys it though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oops, whoops, whoops, whoops. Go back. There you see the report. News of the world. Speed monsters at Brooklands. There we go. After you know, VW Arrington winning the August Handicap. Tom Delaney in his, his Lee Francis. 
And I can't remember who the other gentleman is, but uh, yeah. There we go. Oh, Raymond Mays. Another good friend of my father's. We all know Raymond Mays, BRM. Yeah, another good friend of my father. And this is what the trouble is. My father knew a hell of a lot of pre-war motor races because he went to all the race meetings he, and he met them and they wanted parts for their cars. And we ended up making the exhaust manifolds for BRM for well, all, their, all their cars that they raced. Now, we don't get away from it all. There we go. Mr. Plod. Yeah. This is taken about 1934, I think, because those two cars are Wolsey Hornets. And it, wasn't, it was about that time that the, um, the police actually got cars for the first time. I do not know what this car is exactly. Unfortunately, my father's trade plates were on it. So I can't work it out for me. But again, somebody from Brooklands has written on it, possibly an Allard. But all I do know is that person there has got long hair, so my father was out with a young lady. There we go. Oh, we need some fresh air, don't we? Yes. Right. Oh, dear. As you can see, he went, he also raced at at Brooklyn, at uh, Donington Park. Now this is where you can see there, record-breaking mechanic killed in practice and all the rest of it, and there's this, the shot of the, being thrown out of the car. You can see there's his foot up in the air. Yes, not very good. But that's what the important bit is. My father came second in race two. There we go. That's the only little report. They talk all about the accident, but they don't talk anything about who did what. Uh, Well, there's a familiar scene, and that's what started it all off. I sent this photograph into Brooklands, and they said, Oh, that's interesting. Would you like to give us a talk? <laughs> that's how I got today, which I'm actually very grateful and very proud of the privilege. But as you can see, this is the bank overlooking down, and that's where we are now, just up there, in that room there. So uh, you can see how things have changed all those years. So we think, I would think that's probably still about mid-1930s. There's my father racing in his Samson in one of the races. There's actually, there's a big file here on my father, so that's why I'm actually talking more in general terms about various little things that he used to do. And that's on, again, at Brooklands, as you can see. The bank in the background, and it is MGTA. He also raced an Austin 7 here, as well as a Wolsey Hornet and Samson's. Um, the, uh, also, he, he used to do in lots of things, because, as I say, he used to go Donning, Donington Park, Skegness, Brooklands. There's also a trophy there over there, a tankard, which is from the London to Gloucester Trials. He went in that twice. Or what car? Probably a Wolsey Hornet again. He loved his Wolsey Hornet. Right, a, very, a gentleman very kindly sent this to me only a, a few days ago. And it's because, does any, anybody did have a Mini? Did have a Mini in ordinary 815? Yes, yes. 
Yeah, do you remember the SPQR gear, remote gear change? Well, my father designed one in the 1930s for the MGM type, amongst others. Also the Hudson Terraplane and the Vauxhall and the Rhine E9. Whether it's the same gearbox, I don't know, but there we are. Of course, there's the aero screens again, and also the luggage carriers. Now at the top there, copperized cylinder heads. Well, what he used to do, apparently, was to get a... They didn't polish cylinder heads in those days. They copperized them in order to make it smooth. So that's how it used to be done in those days. Review, re, reduces petrol consumption and tendency to pink. Copper plated the inlet and exhaust. Yeah, yes. Hmm. Now, down then, you can see your deep note exhaust systems, which you can't really read the writing on, I'm afraid, because this is a um, blow-up copy of a blow-up as such. But amongst the cars he made them for, and this is what I found very, very interesting, was he made them for the De Chrysler, Delarge, Essex, Lee Francis, Rovers, Vauxhalls, DeSotos, Buicks. Unbelievable, he never knew he, he involved himself in American cars. Though going back to what I was saying right at the beginning about um, racing in 1922, he started racing on American motorbikes and he raced here for four years on bikes. Never achieved anything, unfortunately. All I know what, uh, what races he took part. Now, let's have a look. Right. Another... Interesting fact, Greenford, only up the road as such, a 100-mile lap race at Greenford Middlesex Autodrome. So, well, my father crashed inside the fence, turned over and discolated his shoulder and received minor cuts and bruises. He was allowed later to leave, uh, leave hospital after treatment and said, it's a curious coincidence, I crashed at exactly the same spot on Saturday where my car came to grief today. <laughs> ah, didn't he get the message? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, going back, oh yes, going back a bit, a little bit, we saw the MGTA back there. Now, a little story was that um, just after the First World, Second World War, as you know, a lot of the cast iron railings were nobbled by the government <coughs> in order, supposedly, to build bombs. Well, just after the war, this totter came round on his, uh, in those days, the old horse and cart. He said, here, mate, I've got, I've got some crankshafts in the back here. Oh, go on, bugger off, you know, we're not interested. Yeah, brand new, mate. Yeah, go on, brand new. So my father had a look at them and there were a dozen brand new MG crankshafts which he eagerly snapped up, which he then duly sold on. But uh, they, they, as you can see, they, they, uh, one of those things. In 19, now, come 1949, he went down, he started racing in, again uh, in a Lancia Adia, I believe, at the Furl Hair Climb, Furl Hair Climb, which is near Lewis in Sussex. And uh, 
And one, he then sort of seemed to die, not they say diversified, but I was put, uh, I was put on touch. Now, we can see that's Bugatti, because that's a picture from the Bugatti. Well, which Bugatti? Is that you? No, it's not me. <laughs> I can assure you it's not me. This, but he seemed to go into bodybuilding, and this is another diversity thing that my father did. Unbelievable. That is what it came from. Look, there we go. Yeah. Unbelievable how he changed that car. And then we go on to another one. This is, yes, there's another one. Oh, we're going to Right, that is outside Clifton Road. I know it because in another photograph it actually shows it. And that is what it was from. Alfa Romeo Type OB. So that's the only picture I could get. Whether how accurate that is, I don't know, unfortunately. But as you can see, it's an, it, that photograph was taken in America. But uh, there was various articles about, uh, about this 374, uh, MPH 374. And unfortunately, the gentleman who ended up, or one of the owners, uh, changed the body back to the original, but I'm sure it's probably worth more as, in, as a Darrington uh, bodywork than a, than a Bugatti um, Alpha bodywork. Right, well, I have to excuse, excuse me because, right, this is an interesting photograph. Right. Now, We probably all know who that gentleman is, Prince Birar. But this is where Google comes in. I needed to see if I could find a date. I have to go to my crib sheets again here, sorry about that. There we go, registration number, TPD1. Now in those days, a lot of sports cars were actually driven to the race meetings because they didn't have transporters. So they were registered for racing. And TPD won on that particular car day, 19, number 18, it was a Cooper Bristol. Tony, Tony, Brook, Tony Crook drove it. So from that, I found out what race that was. And it turned out to be in Silverstone, at Silverstone, 9th of May, 1953, the International Daily Express Trophy Meeting. And there's Prince Birar in his Maserati A6 GCM, who finished third in heat one and fourth in the final with 36 entries. Well, as you know, Prince Birar was, in fact, the grandson of the gentleman that Yul Brynner portrayed in The King and I. My father knew him, obviously, from the Brooklands days, and there he is with his transporter in 1953. The same transporter he had for a few years. As you can see, there's a nice little Derrington steering wheel up there, gas bottles. Yeah. 
One thing I sort of omitted in just pro in 1936, VW Derrington was limited, was formed in the business of dealing in hiring, repairing and cleaning of cars, bikes and planes. And on the 24th of December 1936, flight first advert with a ring, turned up with a ring around Derrington. And specialising for aircraft silencers and manifolds. And in the flight in 1938, in their aircraft services guide, it confirms the above. My strong suspicion is, and I've got obviously no way of con confirming it, is that Hawkers, which my father was uh, a great friend, originally of Sir Tommy Sotworth, he knew Harry Hawker, and later Sir Sidney Cam, and also, as I told you, the managing director, Mike Stranks. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if my father didn't actually make the exhaust stubs for the Hawker Hunter during the last war, because he had to keep going the business during the last war. But I, my strong suspicion is that he, he made the exhaust stubs for them because he was known for making the exhaust pipes. Right. Here's another one of his specials. Nobody will recognise it in the month of Sundays, and I would not give you the op I can tell you it's a Fiat, and it's based on the Fiat 508C. As you can see, the, all the other Fiat's grills in the background there, from that era. But it was a Fiat 508C, we'll cut, you'll see a little ad, and there's me on it. Yeah, we need the R's, don't we? Yes. So we can see that's really early 50s. There it is, built in 1949 from mainly Fiat and Gordini components, Laysol balance crankshaft, Laysol racing bearings, KE965 exhaust valves, five-inch studs and rev count, five-inch studs, I don't know about rev counter, oil and water temperature gauge, Lightweight aluminium body. Yeah, he likes his lightweight aluminium body. Fold flat windscreen. Only 8,000 miles since new. Approximately 90 miles an hour. 36 miles per gallon driven hard. Ideal dual purpose car with suspenders performance. There we go. Now we go on to more modern, I'm afraid. Console Mark I. My father had, again, we made exhaust manifolds, we made SU conversions for that, cylinder heads and every bits and pieces for it. And there, there it is, there's the car on the London Set Rally in the 50s. And unfortunately that's where he ended up. <laughs> Not on the rally, this was in, actually in Brussels of all places afterwards. Yes, he was crossing a road and this lorry decided I want I'm not going to let you go to the wrong side of the road. I'm going to hit you to make sure I go round you. But so uh, anyway, yes, we had to be transported back to England. Another car. Uh, sorry, yes, alright. The console had a really primitive, horrible exhaust. <laughs> Probably did. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. My, my father-in-law had mm. one, and um, it, it was just a piece of rusty steel. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, both on the side of the uh, cylinder head, 
Yeah. That's it. And that was it. Yep. And I, I, I believe it was deliberately not just cost. No idea of getting any performance from the engine. No, wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, in a minute you'll see a photograph of one of my father's exhausts for that car. So, uh, yes, it was most strange because the um, exhaust inlet manifold, uh, sorry, exhaust manifold had a round pipe yes. uh, along it, and yeah. uh, you bolted the inlet manifold on uh, round it in order to heat up the inlet manifold. Most peculiar thing. It was designed in the accounts department. I wouldn't be surprised. This is uh, my father's TR2, which he did a lot of tuning with, a lot of enjoyment. He's, as you can see, there's his racing helmet, and over there, on there is the helmet that he wore. He never changes his helmet. And in those days, we used to. Uh, go down to the race meetings, he used to drive the car there, take the spare seat off, take the spare wheel off and started racing. That was how you started. Very rarely did you actually sort of put it on a transporter. That was taken at uh, Goodwood. Um, but as I say, late, late 50s, it was found, oh, I think it was going about, about 10 years ago. That's the same car. John, do you know about that car? That, that's Paul Marsh's brother-in-law's car. That one there. Yeah, so he completely renovated it. And that's what it looks like today. So that's a, my father's <coughs> racing TR2. Still complete with the original wear well, fly screen as we used to sell them. Now, this is an interesting one. I, I think this is a BMW, but why is it in my father's photo, uh, collection? The registration, uh, the registration number, again, the trade plates. Has he done something special with it? I do not know, but I just thought I'd put it in for a bit of fun just to see if anybody... But going back to our... Transporters. There we go. Look at that. For the Essex uh, Bedding Company, created of the finest bed for caravan mattresses. That's how you get sponsorship, doesn't it? God, <laughs> dear. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And there's obviously the MG Magnet, all working hard on it. There we go, another picture of it in the side view. Again, the Derrington steering wheels, still with the mattress sign on the back. Now, back, it will be about 56, 57 down at Goodwood. Um, apparently, I came back one day all excited and said, Mike Hawthorne's the best driver in the world. Now, those who might not know, the racing numbers in those days was a gentleman used to come along and paint it by hand. I used to earn a few bob by going along with some petrol and rubbing it all off so that people could uh, go home. But Mike Hawthorne gave me half a crown. Oh, a lot of money for a, a little eight-year-old. Well, what I didn't know was sitting in that 
vehicle having uh, a cup of tea because in those days the, the racing drivers didn't have any facilities for, for uh, food or anything like that, food and drink. And my father used to take his mobile thing, he used to have a, and people used to come in there for a cup of tea and used to, uh, yeah. And there was him, my father, talking to Michael Thorne and Sterling Wasp. And I came and said, oh, Ster Michael Thorne's the best. So, those were the days, those were the days, aren't they? This is the, uh, our next one up. Another coach that was converted. Oh, going back on there, there's another thing I must uh, tell you about. That, um, my father did the cylinder head on that on there and put twin carburetors on it <laughs> against the original one. And we were going down, coming out of, uh, from, um, from, well, from Kingston to uh, Goodwood. And we were going down Payne's Hill, as you know, just up the road at Cobham. Eeyore, eeyore, eeyore. I missed the plot, pulled us over on his motorbike. And he said, excuse me, sir, did you know you were doing 55 miles an hour? And my father turned around and said, do you know, I didn't know that car, this could go that fast. But anyway, he started chatting to my father, found out who we were, and he turned around and he said, oh, I go into your shop most weekends. Oh, have a good day, take drive safely, and off we went. <laughs> yeah, there we go. As I say, that was the Mark II version. As you can see, that's my aunt in front of it with a nice cup of, with a pot. Uh, yes. And again, you can see the steering wheels in the, uh, the framework. It also used to race a Morris Minor side valve. And there it is leading at the time, or whether it could be at the end and everyone's catching up, could be a handicap race, I don't know. But there he is at, at uh, Goodwood, racing away. Oh, going back to that TR2, I remember um, we raced at Brooklyn, um, Snetterton once. And we drove up to Snetterton, and don't forget, in those days, we didn't have the motorways. So we were tearing along sort of like so-called A roads, which more like B roads now, and uh, we hit a humpback bridge close on 120 miles an hour and took off. Yeah, oh dear, that's... Now, oh, where, where we got to, where we got to? Oh, yes. This is an exhaust manifold for the... Uh, Morris Minor side valve, which my father so talked about, the fact that equal length pipes, so you had equal exhaust propulsion, and there's a twin issue conversion on it. I think it's a bit of a dummy because uh, it's done for a photograph only because the, it's not a matching pair, but uh, it was a sort of principle. What is very I find it very amusing. You take a car like Morris Minor, you take your, your, your father's full console in any of those cars. We used to have those cars. We used to take them apart. We used to be able to put them back together again. We used to sell our exhaust, uh, our carburetor conversions. Never once did we send them out with instructions as how to fit them because Everybody knew how to work them. They, they thought, ah, oh, right, I'm a mechanic. I, uh, yes, I know how to do this. 
And that's it. We never, ever did. Not, no. You didn't have that, like IKEA instructions, take your tools off and put it on and go for the best. But uh, no, no instructions at all. We always used to s s send them out there blind. Oh dear, can't believe how we do it nowadays. Oh. You know, we can't buy a watch without having to have a big booklet how to work it. Right, my father, <laughs> little old me again, 1958, little old me. Um, my father was, had a great affinity also for Fiat's, as you can see by the Fiat 508. And there, is, it's, this is me signing the visitor's book. And apparently I was the youngest visitor uh, since the Second World War to visit the Turin Motor Company. And that's me signing the visitor's book because my, my father, as the president of the Fiat Motor Club, organised a visit there. Amongst, amongst other things that he, he was involved in. There's me again, talking to my father. Brands Hatch and a Fraser Nash. Love to know which model Fraser Nash that was, but uh, somebody will no doubt find out. There he is. That is Ivor Bjurbs behind it in his, with his transporter. That's Team Lotus's uh, transporter there. And as you can see, that is the, um, your parking space. Yeah, nice and muddy. Yeah, that's what you used to uh, you know, wait for before you went onto the track. Mind you, the first thing you used to worry about was trying, obviously, to get the mud off your tyres, I should think. God, dear. Yeah, there we That's it. 19, 1956, I think. It's 57, something like that. Well, again, yes. That's my mother and my aunt out with the Fiat Topolino van that we had. As you can see, Derrington and the Fiat... And, so, yes, that's what, how we used to deliver our goods to various companies around the area. And there's a later one with a... She loved cats. Um, Fiat one, uh, um, Ford 105E, and again, you can see the, the Fiat sign on it, spares and services. Mm. That's our corner shop back in the, uh, in the 60s. <laughs> No yellow lines, look at that. No yellow lines, yeah. Yep. And you can see, absolutely crammed full on the left hand. <laughs> CUD was our, what we used to do. Luggy, um, badge bars. Absolutely full of them, badge bars, yeah. Yes. There we go. Yes, so that's my uncle. He died in 1973. He, he rang the shop, and there he is behind the counter. There, <laughs> and remember Desmo Mascots? That is a Desmo, genuine original Desmo display cabinet, which I have, st well, still in the family possession. It's really the only thing I ever kept from, uh, from our shop. But there we go. There's loads of Holtz products. Oh, that's going up back a few years. Yeah, absolutely crammed with stuff left, right, and centre. Our place was, and we used to supply nuts and bolts up to uh, all bits and pieces. So, uh, right, TD. Well, fourteen Clifton Road. 
that's where we used to make the exhaust manifolds. As you can see, all the pipes bent. Now, for your information, you probably don't know how, how we used to make them as such. We used to get a tube of pipe and we filled it with sand, then plug it with a, wo a wooden plug and then heat bend it and bend it to the shape and then while it was still, and then it obviously we got it to the shape, it will then be, um, if there was any wrinkles they would be beaten out but, uh, but that was all while it was done hot and we had various shapes and formers in order to do it. Now a sample of the, one of our exhaust manifolds is over there. Um, I think it could be um, a Repco Brabham one, one half of a V8 exhaust manifold. As you can see, I'm sorry it's going to be, it's a bit rusty and this obviously is a bit dirty, but you will see that that has been hot, what they call hot formed, not cold formed. There's no crinkles, no creases, no, no restrictions at all. It's just a pure skill of bending a pipe with, into, uh, into a shape. Not like sophisticated now where they all make it to all... Uh... Right, there we go. Full Fairlane V8 engine fitted with a Darrington Extractic exhaust manifold for Indianapolis cars. One of our claims of fames. Our exhaust manifolds, we won the oh, in the Lotus, won the Indianapolis. Yes, that's where you go. We also made for the GT40s as well, as you can imagine, made the exhaust manifolds. Hondas, when they first came into uh, motor racing in the early 60s, they air freighted a chassis and a mock-up into us and we made the exhaust manifold and it was air freighted back to them. And that's how it was when we made the, uh, the Hondas came onto the scene. Now I don't know if anybody saw the program a few weeks ago um, regarding Graham Hill and John Surtees. There was on, it was uh, one of the programs on, they were uh, a comedian was saying how he, Graham Hill was his hero and they did an article. And both of them, you, they showed in the 60s when they started motor racing, and they showed you in the, uh, their, the Lotus Fords and um, Lotus Coopers and all the rest of it, their cars. And, well, they wouldn't have got anywhere without a Darrington exhaust manifold and a Darrington steering wheel. And that set, up, set them up for, for life. Come on. That used to be our little car sales place. 200 London Road. Again, your local Fiat agent. Why he's got... I never knew why we had that carriage in there. It was in there for years. Oh, I never, never understood why we had a bloody old horse carriage there. It looked like out of Cinderella. Why never? God, dear. Strange things we had. My father probably make, thought you made 50p in it. Well, there's my father. Again, this is the racing car show around about 1960. Again, there's your console Mark I exhaust manifold. There's the hot spot on there. There's the Zephyr one with the uh, six branch. That's 100E. There's the aluminium silver top head, anti-roll bar, rocker cover, 
Again, that was again another Ford. TR Morgan, Triumph Engine Morgan. That's twin issue for, uh, no, uh, Weber conversion for uh, Mini, but again, just using the exhaust manifold. And that was a Triumph, Triumph Herald. There we go, there's an HRG Derrington cylinder head. Those, look at the money in those cars, oh dear. On those carburetors there. Again, you've got the Derrington steering wheels, inlet manifold, the Coventry Climax, uh, loads of Salite ones, anti-roll bars, Kenlo fans, Pico exhaust, they used to come on our stand. By Joe, we used to have some fun. Yeah. There we go, so you can get an idea of variety. What is remarkable when you think about it is that you talk about tuners and you see, okay, you Bill Blindstein who, who specialised in Vauxhall, um, Broadspeed with Ford, Rudd with Volvo. My father was the only tuner who tuned a variety of cars. You just didn't get one, you got a dozen, two dozen. My God, how, you know, you think to yourself, how could he think these things up and do things like that? But he did. There we go. He was very much into aluminium cylinder heads. There we can see the HRG crossflow head for the B-series engine. Up there was a silver top head that could have been uh, possibly either 100E or a Saival Morris. And he used to, you know, used to make them. We used to supply them. And... Uh, he did one, when Barwell shut down, he bought the, the aluminium head for the uh, um, uh, A-series engine. Right, steering wheels. There we go, there's a picture. Now, in this particular shot, I'm showing you 300, 360 degrees, yes. Why? Asymmetrical, every 120 degrees. I'm now going to show you a photograph out the paper. Do we recognize it? Look at that steering wheel. There we go. Yeah. Jack Brabham used to use our steering wheels to drive his cars. When the Australian Grand Prix, sorry, when the Australian Grand Prix was, they decided to do a steering wheel, uh, sorry, the trophy based on the steering wheel that he drove with. And that's what he drove with. He drove with a Derrington steering wheel. There we go. And I wrote to Murray Walker once to complain, why did he not tell, tell them that it's based on a Derrington steering wheel? We never got a reply. <laughs> uh, oops, put some, back, swine. There we go. 1964. There's my father. There we go, let's have a look. There we go. Derrington Francis. Al Francis and my father teamed up and bought the ATS 1963 car, upgraded it, and Mario Cabral uh, drove it at Monza. We all went over to Monza, had a great time. Well, I did. Yeah, had uh, chicken and chips and a Coke for every meal. Really good, that was. <laughs> Well, you didn't get chicken and chip, fried chicken and chips at home, but you did out there. Oh, it was great there. But uh, yes, so yes, we went out there for the Monza Grand Prix. 
Fortunately, it didn't last very long. He only lasted a few laps and he had electrical fault. Never raced again. Though the car is still in existence, you will, it was normally you'll see it down at the uh, uh, Goodwood Revival. And, and the gentleman owns it over, at, uh, uh, over by the airport, works over the airport. Right, there's the MG Magnet that my father had, PRW64. HRG head, side drive webbers. We even had an overdrive on it. We used to be able to cruise at over 100 miles an hour. And my father every year went to, um, across Europe and drove this. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And he, with the steering wheel, uh, sorry, with the seat, he made, used to sell bucket seats. First of the bucket seats, aluminium bucket seats. And he made a frame, because in those days, if you've seen MG Magnet, they used to sort of have a, a seat about that thick. And he made a, 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 um, a tubular frame, and he had those straps with the little uh, rubber straps with a, the hook on the end, with a distant little covering over the top, and because it used to it saved about fifty pound in weight. So uh, yes, but we used to, we travelled across there. You know, it was nothing to try drive about five hundred miles in a day because back in the you know late fifties, early sixties. There wasn't much traffic in France, so you could, uh, didn't have the police to worry about or anything like that. Cool. He used to all over the place. Another car he rode. Anyone recognize it? Yeah, Renault 750. God, he drove that. Oh, dear. Yeah, always, always, I know the race report, he was last, but, uh, yeah, but never mind. In a handicap race, but uh, not surprised. But we used to do an SU conversion for that. Exhaust manifold. Hillman Imp. Yeah. 1966. This is the last race as such. It was a speed trial in uh, Trier, out in Germany. And he came third, and the friend who was with him drove it, and with it came first. Very interestingly enough, this was a 998cc. My father, when... Um, Hillman Imps came out. They were fitted with a Coventry Climax fire engine modified for an imp. And it was in a 1000cc version, but they reduced it down to 875. Now, the company that made the pistons was a company called BHP Pistons in Twickenham. My father got in touch with them and said, Cool, oh, you got any pistons and liners? Yes. So he converted it to 998cc and other tweaks and all the rest of it. Later on, when Chrysler decided to upgrade the IMP to the, I think it was the IMP Rally, 998cc, they wanted to um, uh, have the 998cc all to themselves, but it was pointed out to them that, unfortunately, it was a common practice thing, so they could not get... It's homologated as such, and so that's why it didn't last all that long. You know, they uh, made a little uh, faux pas. Um, in the 60s, my father, uh, one of the gentlemen who my father was well known with contact was a gentleman called Norman Jones. Norman Jones was the boss of the Flying Tiger Club and owned, I think he owned Red Hill Aerodrome at the time. But um, 
Every year they had a uh, raffle. And one year the raffle was an MGM type, and my father won it. And, my, and, and Norman Jones turned around and said, Cool, he said, I don't. Um, I couldn't have wished for anybody better to have won my, this car. Now, I drove that car uh, when I was oh, about 17, 18, 18, yes, 18. And it was great fun. Thoroughly enjoyed that car. It double de clutch, you, and you sat on a, uh, on a cushion holding on with your arm on your right hand, going along at uh, what you thought was 90 miles an hour, and it was 30. Uh, you drove it with a seat of pants, but by Jove, you had some fun driving that around the corners. God dear. Yeah, love that one. Unfortunately, this is the only photograph I got of inside our garage, which is a great shame, but that's the only photograph I've got so far. Now, you'll see here, this is the King's Cup Air Race, 1960, and it was written by John, squadron leader John Severn, again a friend of my father, who was His Royal Highness Duke of Edinburgh's pilot. Um, though he had a single-seater plane, uh, Prince Philip, he did not fly it, but John Severn did. Anyway, my father was contacted by John Severn and said, could we tune it? My father said, Yes, of course. So we went off to Vienna and picked up a load, because the engine in it was a VW engine. Now we didn't specialize, even though my father's name was Victor William, my father never made any parts for VW. But he knew how to build engines, and so we built an engine for Prince Philip for his King's Cup air race, which he duly won, or as you can see, first and second in the King's Cup air race. I'm writing to thank you for the part which you played in my success last Saturday. There's no doubt your efforts were mainly responsible for the remarkable speed which we achieved. I'm most grateful for all the trouble you took in preparing the engine. I'm delighted to see very kind of you to think to your yours indeed. Now, hopefully, there's unfortunately a bit of a fuzzy photograph, but that is the little plane where you can see the VW engine. But the best, better picture is this one here. There we go, look at that. What we pride ourselves in, what my father developed mostly in this country in 1956, Weber carburetors. Made Weber, put a twin choke Weber on it, as amongst other things, and made it go how it ever flew, uh, in the sense that uh, it's out in the cold, I don't know, but it worked and uh, he won the race. Rollison Turbulent, yes. Yes, you're right there. Well done. Yeah, Norman Jones. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he was the one. He he owned. Uh, again, that's how my father knew about it. And there, obviously, is the exhaust pipe, which is just basically a straight U. But uh, as you can see, very very smooth flowing around the corner. We used to make the uh, exhaust stubs for Rollisons for the, uh, the planes that they flew. Right. Another person my father knew well, Norman Wisdom. Norman Wisdom, as you know, was a very short gentleman. And he had a Bentley. Couldn't reach the pedals easily. So my father made a steering wheel that was specially deep for him. And there's a letter of thank you for him, written in July 1960, saying, by his secretary saying, thank you very much indeed. 
Mr. Wisdom has asked me in his absence to um, thank you for and all the rest of it, blah, 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 for his steering wheel. And my friend got quite chatty with him and there he, he came up and visited my father at the racing car show. Again, yeah, there you'll see uh, triple, triple Weber set up. Yeah, there's uh, probably Austin Healy 3000. There's a Sprite. Again, the serials. MG Grab Handle, one of those over there, you can see, which has been un unmodified. And RAM pipes. My RAM, we, used to, we used to sell loads of RAM pipes all over the world, from inch and an eighth to two inch for the SU carburetors. And, one, and that, I've got one over there. I had to buy. I bought that back from Australia. It's the only way I could get it. The uh, aero screen, that was um, over there. That is uh, 1968. Um, that gentleman who, whose name on the box bought that for his Austin 7 chummy. Found he couldn't drill the holes in his Austin 7 chummy. So he kept it in the box and finally, so, 30 odd years later, he put it on eBay and I was successful in bidding for it and uh, that's how I get how to find my bits and, well, the uh, aero screen and the round pipe. All the rest was something I've already had. Whoops, what's the next one? Ah, another thing, my father used to encourage um, individual people to turn up to uh, uh, two things and this, this is a Martin V8 engine that uh, in all aluminium that was for a Formula One car and I think it was something I'm, I'm not sure of the right person but I think it was Piers Courage was or it might have been uh, something Taylor it was one or the other who were going to take delivery of that engine and was killed a week before uh, they took delivery of that engine. And unfortunately, because of that, it never sold. It sat on our window for years until we, uh, uh, somebody finally came along and um, bought it off us. Tommy Trinder was a regular customer of ours because obviously in those days, he used to go past our shop on the way up to Fulham, Fulham Football Club. Now, this is coming towards the end. There we go, Stony Moss. My father's friend in the, in the back. Behind him is um, Leonard Reese of Reese Fish Carburetors. But now chatting to a young Stony Moss. My father knew the family, the Moss family. It was, as you know, that uh, um, Pat Moss was born in Thames Ditton. So he knew Fred Moss and, uh, and Stony Moss. A few years ago, there was a program on television about his house, and he was escorting people through the house, and just above a doorway was two steering wheels. And the guy asked him about those two steering wheels, and he turned around and he said, those two steering wheels saved my life. And these were the two steering wheels that were made by Darrington, the leather rim steering wheels. And when he was crashed, his last crash at Goodwood, that's what saved his life because my father made them in duraluminum, and they were designed that um, when you, in the old days, you'll see cars that had a plastic steering wheel. 
and maybe metal spokes. But my father designed a duralumin because he realised that it will fold underneath you. It was, soft, it was strong enough, but soft enough, so that it absorbed the, uh, absorbed the stress levels of you and it being bent into your, into your shape. And old sausages. That's one thing I've forgotten to bring. I was going to bring you up in Derrington's steering wheel. Oh dear. Sorry. Anyway, this was written, this is a, an obituary in 1972. 1st of May 1972, uh, my father died. He, uh, this is the obituary run in the, uh, in the, in the program, in, in the Hot Car magazine. That's right, Hot Car. And it says, as a Brooklyn's racer and tuner, he virtually saved the day by producing 90% of all Brooklyn's cars to subdue the race exhaust after residents near the track had almost closed it by a court order. Things don't change much, do they? Yeah, no. In the, as you can see, there's another picture of his Samson at, uh, on the banks at Brooklyn's. Uh, one of the stories always he, always, he t used to t he told me once he was asked in the fifties to pick up a Maserati from the uh, from the factory. Now again, as I say, remember, no major motorways or nothing, but he managed to drive back from the Maserati f uh, um, factory to Calais in eight hours. <laughs> so that is shifting in those days. That's uh, MG Magnet, the PRW64. Uh, I remember once we were going down the uh, road to Dover, as usual. My, always, my father had left everything to the last minute. We were driving down to uh, um, Dover, and he hit, and suddenly we, he put slams his brakes on, but we hit a roundabout. And my father turned around and said, "That wasn't here last time." <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. We got towed, towed back. The staff wasn't surprised. Undid the, uh, undid the sump, took, uh, put, this, put a new, new sump on it. Next day we were back on the road going back to, uh, back to uh, the continent. One of the other things about which I never knew about, and this is getting towards the end of such, sorry, I hope you don't mind, a, little, a few minutes. But um, when I talked to you about the vans, uh, that were taken to the rotor racing vehicle. We used to do a lot of repairs, obviously for cars, but occasionally we used to take them to the motorcycle tracks. And one of our guys, he was a specialist in repairing petrol tanks while sitting while the, the tanks were still on the uh, motorbike. How he ever did it, I've got no idea, but he, d he knew how he, d he did it. Uh, Yes, I know, I know, but it's as I say. Um, other people that my f we, we had dealings with over the years, uh, so this is only just, uh, was also the Beatles. Uh, yes, be remember they had their black minis? Where they, well, they were fitted with the Clotty Francis gearboxes, and we were the agents for Clotted Francis. So they bought their minis in for us to uh, have a look at their gearboxes, and I remember listening on the earwigging on the... Uh, Telephone line, hearing the Beatles. And, an, and another odd uh, person we had dealing with was, was Rosetta Cowell. 
Now, Rosetta Cowell was the first transvestite. <laughs> and she lived in Richmond, and uh, she used to come into our shop to buy, but she used to go racing. And she used to come into our shop, and it was a very, very, very thick voice. Yes, yes, it was uh, rather amusing, that. Oh, dear. But our steering wheels were actually made on premises, despite an advert by a well-known uh, company says makers of the Derrington steering wheel. They never were the makers. We actually used to make the discs. And I always cut the discs. They used to come in round, and we used to cut the old triangle bit out, and I always remember the old... Uh, uh, all those wastes that we used to have boxes full of these. They were then French polished, and that's what the difference was. They were French polished by a gentleman in Tolworth, and uh, they were polished. The um, frames, um, the, that's obviously the French was the uh, rim as such, but the frames were polished by a company in, on the Yule Road called Serbton Platers. Um, now, Back, going back a little bit, just a little thing. Another thing, I've, two things my father was involved in, and this is really the last, near enough, the last five minutes. Pre-war and post-war, he used to organise ski trips. He was also the secretary of the Sopwith Apprentices Association from 1955 to 72 because he was one of the first Sopwith, and also, as I said, the chairman of the Fiat Motor Club or president, whatever they want to call him in. But going back, let's have a think about it. Copperized cylinder heads, aluminium cylinder heads, in the exhaust manifolds of cars, SU ram pipes, anti-roll bars, woodroom and leather steering wheels, remote gear changes, luggage carriers, bonnet leather straps, error screens and fly screens, Weber carburetors, making them into the, one of the best carburetors of tuning cars ever. And he's even rumoured that Ford's actually bought one of our 2836 DCD Weber units, tried it out because it's so successful, and that's what ended up on the Cortina GT. Also tough-eyed crankshafts, polished conrods, as I say, aluminium bucket seats, as well as introducing inventive ideas from other people. One of the items he brought in from Australia was the um, uh, sponge-type um, air cleaners. Uh, that was, you know, so we, we had a lot of things that my father was involved in. Now, this is the finale. A comment from John Bolster, first of all, it's not on here, but it's, well, I'll read out of here. My, about the 1963 racing car show from John Bolster, as usual, has just about everything on his stand from aluminium cylinder heads, Formula Junior engines, close ratio gearbooks to woodroom steering wheels, and of course for ra special racing exhaust systems, Derry is, Derry is the boy. And with one exception, all Grand Prix cars at the racing car show were fitted with Derrington exhaust manifolds and systems. Now this obituary reads here, those of us who knew him well just cannot believe that Derry is dead. Even when I was a boy at school, he was sending his deep node exhaust systems, which made your Austin or Morris sound like a red label Bentley. Indeed, Vic Goodies had been selling Derrington invented bolt-on goods for, from his well-known emporium in Kingston for well over 40 years. Nobody could call his premises tidy, but he knew where to find everything 
gained an immense reputation for his exhaust manifolds, particularly for the modern racing V8, which demand a real snake-charming job. Carburetors, inlet manifolds and special cylinder heads were just a few of his specialities, but there was hardly a part of high-performance car that couldn't be found at Derrington's. Derry was no mean dicer himself, especially when he had a very hot supercharged Thompson before the war. Later became a great Fiat enthusiast and also specialised in tuning CR2. At every race meeting, he could be found in, his in the paddock with his van, helping anybody in his trouble who was in trouble, and he was always first to arrive in the morning, cooking bacon and eggs galore in his frying pan. He loved travelling and could tell a merry tale of his adventures, and we shall miss him very much. That was John Bolster. That is the end of my speech. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it entertaining. Um, it was a lot easier to so we say, speak it than to go through all the files, records and everything else that I had over the, over, over the last few months. But anyway, may I say thank you entirely for turning up this evening and listening to my, the story of my father, who, as you can see, did a lot of good for the motor racing industry. Thank you. Oh, a bit longer. <laughs> do you want to do, do the Cooper Thank conference? Thank you very much, Stuart. I know an awful lot more about your dad now than I did when I started. Thank you very much. Do you have any questions for Stuart? Have I answered them all? Can't we, can't we, can't have answered them all. Anyone have any questions? Oh, well, I'm the firm. Basically, in nine, my, my, one of the things I touched on was about the fact of rented properties. My father grew up in the era of rented properties. Now we talk about the era of buying your own property. So when, in 1919 uh, to 1926, he then moved to Kingston. In 26 to 48, he was at 159. 161 came up, and, uh, which was obviously the corner shop, and instead of buying it, he rented it. And what happened was that in 1972, when my father died, his, um, uh, the lease was annulled and we had to get, organize a new lease. And we were only on a temporary lease because in 1979, um, the London Transport kicked us out because they wanted to build a massive, nice big London Transport bus station. That only lasted 10 years before that got knocked down. So we moved in to another address in 1986 in Kingston, um, which I then closed because, uh, shall we say, I got fed up with uh, supporting the banks, building societies, the Inland Revenue, the VAT, and all the other places. But uh, that's what happened. Basically, in 86, I called it a day. Now I wish I kept all those bits and pieces and kept going because come eBay and all the rest of those, you can sell things worldwide without any trouble. But, uh, apart from the Royal Mail. Yeah. Anybody? Any oh, there's it. Yes. In the there. Right. Did you find uh, with the um, advancement of all these um, electronic stuff and cars these days that a lot of them have kind of gone out? Exactly. Exactly what I was saying. Exactly. You cannot buy. I, I used to work on my car. No problems at all. Come, come, you know, 1988 or something like that, and they started looking at it, and you're thinking, hold on, hold on. Now, I wouldn't even, I just open the bonnet, oh, yes, that's there, and close it, because I, you, just, you just can't see anything, you can't do anything. 
You can't, uh, you know, it's really highly specialised. Yes, young lady. Yeah. That I don't know, unfortunately. I, that I wouldn't know. You see, this is the problem. Um, as I said right at the beginning, a lot of these part, uh, you know, the drivers and the mechanics or designers always take the the, uh, the glory as such, which is only right. But it's where the parts come from they never tell you about. And, uh, you know, even nowadays in Formula One, everything is top secret. So, they, you know, they won't, you know, you can't find out where they get bits and pieces from. Almost certainly, almost certainly that my father knew the people for, from ERA. He would know the people from Thompson and Taylor, being only down, down in Cobham. He would have known all those people because it would, he, he raced a lot of times at, uh, at, uh, at Brooklands. But how... I'm afraid that I cannot answer. Maybe a photograph might show up something, but uh, unlikely that I could uh, say 100%. Yeah, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, well, there we go, you see. Exactly, this is, um, I have on Facebook, um, there's a VW Derrington f uh, page, and as I try to find out information, and hopefully people ask me about, uh, about things, that I'd be able to answer it, or they can say, I mean, one of the first pictures we had was a picture of an outing to South End, which I never knew about. Uh, apparently, somebody... Um, was one of our mechanics and went down there. So, yes, there's, all, there's info out there, but uh, it's very much like um, Antiques Roadshow in the sense that you, go to, you, you watch on television and they find some papers that somebody's had for years about some person. They said, oh, and it, they would die for this information. And this is really it. And of course, again, you get also photographs. And you get photographs of about four or five people, and you think, who are those? I don't know any. None of our family, oh, throw them away. And they could be the photograph that you're looking for. There we go. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much again, Stuart. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now. Right, we're going to invite you to press the button. Press the button. The